This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Guys, why are you braving supermarkets with psychopaths who want to kill each other with knives or toilet paper? I may be slightly exaggerating, but the apocalypse is only just kicking off. We're at the beginning of the Mad Max stuff right now. So while we can... Go to bellacatering.com.au, get the most beautiful home-cooked meals from one of Sydney's best catering companies, therefore one of Australia's best catering companies, and have it driven to your house. You can feed your family here in self-isolation, throw some stuff in the fridge, eat some leftovers, don't go out there and brave it if you don't have to, and you don't necessarily want to order a big takeout. You can do it all at home. They're great. This is my little way to help Glenn and Maria and their team um, who have pivoted to home delivery from catering because of the big shutdowns. Get onto that. Bellacatering.com.au. Now, onto the show. When producer and star Robert Redford shopped all the president's men around to the studios in the mid-1970s, his pitch was met with almost universal indifference. In addition to the conventional wisdom that political subjects are box office poison, all the president's men had the problem of being based on an historical moment. The Watergate break-in and cover-up. So recent, everyone already knew the ending of the story and was sick of hearing about it. Redford believed in the project and refused to take no for an answer. However and eight Oscar nominations and several million dollar box office dollars later, his passion was vindicated. Revit's feeling all along that audiences might be familiar with the broad strokes of the Watergate story and its role in forcing President Nixon to resign, but that the narrative could be made fresh by following the young journalists whose dogged investigative reporting broke the story. Bob Woodward, played by Redford, and Carl Bernstein, Dustin Hoffman, were opposites thrust together by the Watergate scandal which would become the defining moment of not only the country, but also for their careers. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a filmmaker, a film historian, uh, one of the great, and this a person of significant envy when you're sitting over in Sydney, Australia, doing podcasts and following people online and seeing this man's name regularly interviewing some of the greatest filmmakers and actors who currently are alive and working today. Um, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome uh, uh, someone with a, a research ethos that's coming to this coming to this show um, and just a, a dynamic film mind you would have heard him on one heat minute productions already in the longest episode of increment advice to date he is the incredible jim hemphill jim thank you so much for being a part of the show thanks for having me i really appreciate it so here we are all the president's men 1976 you wrote um people would have heard um at the beginning of this show uh you uh, because that is how the show is introduced. Your uh, American cinematographer's uh, discussion of all the president's men that you f- finally said you didn't even really remember writing. Um, but I, <laughs> right. uh, but uh, I, I just wanted wanted to ask you, you know, what what's your relationship been with all the president's men? As a, you know, I know that you're a fastidious guy when it comes to craft, so. Where does all the president's men stand up for you in that absolute logjam of kind of definitive and incredible American films in the seventies? Uh, it's pretty high up there, and part of it is just a matter of circumstances in terms of how I discovered it. You know, when I was a kid, I, I grew up in the you know the the Betamax, even the Betamax age before the VHS age. I mean, yes. I, my family. We got a Betamax machine probably when I was around eight years old or something like that, uh, seven or eight years old, and it was still pretty early on. And in those days, um, where I lived, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and movies on video were not that accessible. You know, there wasn't that much stuff available yet. So I, uh, the only place to get movies to watch on our VCR was the local library in our town, and they only had about 25 movies. So in a way, my sort of uh, youthful, my young film education was kind of by by a local librarian. So, uh, you know, I I didn't necessarily, it's not like today, like I I sort of envy 
and feel sorry for kids today who grew up as movie fans and have access to so much at the click of a button because there's something kind of romantic about uh, not having easy access to stuff. But anyway, um, so one of the movies could, the library could, has couldn't all agree more that the, the the intimidation of a movie library online is what way less than a shelf. Like one of the things that I think we can all agree on, if you ever go away to a holiday and you stay with family or friends or a holiday house and it has a tiny shelf with a very limited selection of books or movies, like it's nice because you go, oh, yeah. well, I only have these books to read. That's great. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. And so, and so anyway, so as a kid, I, you know, I think, I, like I said, probably around eight years old or something when I saw Frozen Spinner for the first time, it would have been because go to the local library, had a typed list of the movies they had, and you would say, oh, I want to watch Annie Hall or Alien or whatever, and they would go back to the back in a room and come back with your Betamax copy of one of those movies. And so, uh, you know, I basically, as a kid, went down the list, and All the President's Men was one of the movies they had. And so I saw that at around seven years old, uh, you know, in, in a way too young to understand it. But for some reason, and, I, and I'm not sure why, as a kid, I was obsessed with journalism movies. Because like another movie that was really big for me at the time uh, was Absence of Malice, the Sidney Pollack movie that yes. came out in theater at around the time when I discovered All President's Men on, on video. And I was really into that movie. And for the life of me now, I look back and I can't figure out what I was getting out of these movies at seven or eight years old. But for some reason, um, I was very obsessed with them. And All the President's Men, uh, I remember there was something about it that was... The funny thing to me now is so this would have been probably somewhere around 1980 or 81. And All the President's Men then, to me, felt as far away as, you know, Ben-Hur or something. <laughs> and, I mean, it was probably only about five years old. old but, yes. some, but that felt to me, it felt like an old movie because it was more than half of my life. <laughs> I checked the movie out of the library and watched it and it came completely obsessed with it as a kid and have remained obsessed with it my entire life for for a number of reasons i mean i think one being one of the things that obsessed me as a kid still today which is trying to sort of figure out what it is about this movie that makes it what it is about pecula's filmmaking and the performance and gordon Wilson's cinematography that makes it so riveting well, it is essentially just a movie about guys driving around going from room to room talking to people and looking through you know sheets of you know fl little slips of paper and and all this i mean there's this way and especially and, and again where everyone knows the ending it's like this is not a movie that should and I've heard, you know, people have talked about this to varying degrees on your podcast already, and people like Soderbergh have talked about it over the years. There's just something amazing about how riveting this movie is, and it absolutely shouldn't be. And there are other movies that I don't find riveting the same way that are kind of similar. Like, you know, for example, I like the movie uh, Apollo 13, but that's a movie where knowing and ending, like, I never was drawn into it the way that I was as a kid seeing all the president's men and the way I still am, even though I've seen the movie now, probably 20 or 25 times. Um, there's just, there is some, you know, and now I've got some theories about it, but as a kid, <laughs> I just was, I was completely mesmerized and I, it's it sort of the way my, you asked about it in its like sort of role in the pants of 70 movies. As a kid, that movie was kind of my gateway drug two 70s movies you yes. know it was first it was the first robert redford movie i think i saw maybe maybe except for electric horseman another kind of journalism movie but i saw i guess on electric horseman in the theater so maybe that was maybe that was the first redford movie i saw but but all president's been would have been like the second redford movie i saw might have been the first dustin hoffman movie i saw certainly was the first alan j pecula movie i saw yes. and it sort of sent me on a a path of wanting to um you know, find all the other movies by those guys. You know, I became obsessed as a kid with the Red movie, the Hollywood movies. And I also, because I didn't really understand the movie completely, then I went to the same library and checked out the book, All the President's Men, which yes. was the first book I ever I ever read in my life about politics or about journalism. Or so, and so that got me, you know, then, you know, the, that, that got me interested in reading other books stuff like that so all the president's men as a movie was, was huge in my life in terms of my interest both in 70s movies uh and politics and 
it's so interesting that you say that it becomes a gateway drug for the 70s and it becomes a gateway drug for American politics and it becomes a gateway drug for that. And it's so strange also because you talk about something that's like elemental. You know, I think people reference it with kids a lot, like you forget those organic ways that you experience films. But this is a film yeah. that doesn't lose any of its luster for me either. And I don't know quite what that is. I'd be yeah. loving to hear your theories is that – and that's part of the you know the impetus of this entire show is to sort of continue to unpack. There are movies like you – know, and cut from the same cloth like a spotlight where mm-hmm. you know exactly what the outcome is. And they're trying to do it in the same way and it does not pack nearly the same punch. And some would argue it has got like – greater dramatic crescendos there's greater you know impact and affect of the reporting that is actually exhibited in the film than say the woodward and bernstein focus here that um uh that bill goldman ultimately focused on and pakula and and redford was sort of crafted in that so it's really strange it's just this but there is something addictive it is it has an addictive quality to the way that it flows and pakula's work has that in spades like movies that shouldn't be as good but he is so masterful at sort of like eking out every last emotion that you have in connection with it. It's it's kind of like, I don't know, it's this weird hypnotic thing. Yeah, I think Pecula's master, his ma- the mastery of craft is certainly a big part of it. Like Spotlight or I think sometimes about other movies. So whenever Aaron Sorkin does a movie like this, like Social Network or Moneyball, he always kind of gins it up with, this he always adds like a kind of interpersonal thing like you know i you know like social network has got it's there's the whole thing with the rooney mara character and moneyball i don't remember that well but i remember it had something to do with brad pitt's like daughter or something like that you know all the president's men has nothing like that i mean there's no you get no sense really of these guys having any kind of personal lives at all i mean you know i mean you get the sense that bernstein's maybe a little bit of a flirt and whatever but it is just purely a process movie and on the and on the one hand, I think that's part of what makes it so fascinating and so uh, addicting. And and again, I, I, I'm always interested in. I, I've spent my whole life sort of looking under the hood of this movie and trying to figure out why it works. Because you would think theoretically, a movie like Social Network or a movie like Bombshell would work better because of the fact that they kind of dramatize certain things and, and theoretically are sort of, uh, you know, following the quote unquote rules of dramatic structure more or something like that. But for whatever reason, all the president's been is more addicting. And I think it does have a lot to do with Pecula and Gordon Willis. Just there's uh, hypnotic is the perfect word when you said that. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way the movie is shot and framed. I mean, it's, there is, you know, president's men, you know, there's a lot of there is a lot of camera movement, but it's all very, very sort of locked down. Nowadays, so, so there's this sort of cliche in, in American movies now. I think where you know they think it's more real or it's more journalistic if the camera is handheld. If it looks like you know it's kind of darting around trying to find the action, and you have none of that in All Presidents Men. Like it is a very, very precisely designed precisely framed movie and one, one cannot I even imagine of- one cannot even imagine like peter berg working with gordon willis like hey i want three cameras shooting all at the same time and we're just going to pick up the best action no stand-ins we want all the actors there you know that friday night Lights style it's right. like you imagine that gordon willis like gordon willis has already freaked out people moving in the frame with coppola in godfather and godfather yeah. part two so like that that over um it feels like it's it's trying to create a kinetic energy in the movement that's happening in the frame or the movement of the camera rather than just like rather than being very purposeful with the way that it's sort of emphasizing what is in the frame yeah and i mean this is a matter of taste because obviously you know like i'm not personally i don't really like paul greengrass's movies for example which you know he's also that kind of what what gordon willis calls dump truck directing (laughs) um and and i'm and it's, and it's and, and I mean, look, there are some movies that do it and do it very well that I that I like. I mean, I've actually really liked some of uh, Peter Berg's movies, or whatever. But but for my own personal taste, I, I do tend much more toward the Pecula Willis approach, where it, in All the President's Men, I, I think you know Willis talks a lot about how he believes in contrasts, and 
the rhythm of all the president's men visually, the visual structure of the movie is really interesting because it kind of alternates between these frames where, you know, they use a lot of split diopters. So you get a lot of depth of field in the frame where you see, you know, Redford will be on the phone in the foreground. And then in the background, you'll see in crisp focus, other things going on in the newsroom. And you alternate between frames like that, where your eye can kind of go wherever you want it to. Um, And that, in my opinion, creates its own kind of attentiveness. Like I'm drawn more into a frame where I can, where I can't, like you would think it's sort of counterintuitive. Like you would think that, you'd be more drawn to a frame where the director is kind of guiding your eye to where he wants it. But, but, but in my opinion, when you have a frame where you can kind of pick and choose different parts to look at, it, it makes you more attentive. And then on top of that, Pecula alternates it with scenes like the first scene between Redford and Deep Throat in the garage, where it's the exact opposite. Like the focus is so shallow. You see the the actors are in, perfect focus but then you can't see anything else in the garage it's like everything else kind of bleeds into this abstract blur of blackness and kind of smeary lights in the background and you know pecula is just masterful at knowing how to kind of alternate those kinds of frames knowing how to alternate close-ups versus these massive scenes where the characters are kind of dwarfed by Uh, the Washington DC architecture, like there's this kind of constant contrast of different styles of imagery. And I think that's part of what brings, that's part of where that hypnotic quality you talk about comes from. Um, And it's just, and a lot of his movies have, a lot of Peele's movies have it. I mean, I think, you know, Clute has it, Parallax View has it. I mean, mean, Parallax Parallax has it in, as far as scale as well, has it in spades. Because yeah. the architecture is so quintessential to Parallax, like dams and huge, you know, buildings with spires and then like these tiny little dingy, you know, journalistic offices and then these little outpost kind of um, police headquarters and, and or sheriff's, sheriff's offices and things like that that have got bedrooms in them and things like that. You know, it's like it's yeah, the the art architecture and then complementing characters in spaces and a whole raft of different tools in his toolbox are, are what really for me like that's you know that that starts to that really starts to get you every single time and I like how you said you kind of become you get to become a bit of a tourist um, with every single scene because you can sort of place your eyes in the frame wherever you want and it's rich there's not like dead spaces like they're alive yeah. with detail yeah, there's amazing detail in that movie. I mean, that whole, uh, you know, that, that, that whole enormous Washington Post set that they built. I mean, you know, the more you watch the movie, uh, you know, the first couple times you watch the movie when they do have those kind of deep focus shots, it's like you're probably looking at, at Woodward or Bernstein in the foreground on the phone. But then as you watch the movie more and you look in the background, you realize like just how masterful Pecula is and the production designer are just like filling the frame with detail and the detail, the, the sort of, convincing activity of the background actors i mean it really looks like you know everyone in the background they look like they have a purpose like one thing that kind of drives me (laughs) crazy in contemporary movies about like like lately for some reason i've been seeing a lot of new movies that are set in kind of uh news newsrooms or like buzzfeed-esque offices or something like i was just watching um that 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 movie dexy and then I saw, and then the other day I saw the photograph, which is also a movie about uh, journalism. And yes. these movies, you know, you look at the people in the background, they don't look like they're doing anything. <laughs> and, and 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 maybe who knows? Maybe that's more realistic in a way. I mean, maybe maybe that's what it really would look like. I don't know. But but Pekula, you need more people you know, looking at Twitter. That's just what you need. You need so many people hovering around. <laughs> is this a perfectly crafted tweet? Yes, it is. People yeah. doing selfies. I mean, I guess, uh, like, if we're going to do uh, it, let's go hard. Like, let's actually yeah. make it what it's like. <laughs> um, and I mean, granted, it's, it's unfair in a way to, to compare those movies to uh, All the President's Men for all kinds of reasons, <laughs> um, and, and including the fact that it's totally different, different time. And in fact, you know, I mean, All the President's Men is, I think, another reason it's a movie that uh, endures and the people love it. I mean, first of all, it's a movie, you know, it, it's a movie that, that not only filmmakers love, but in particular, people who write about film love. And I think it is because there's this romantic notion of journalism in a way that like, you know, it's funny. I was, I was, uh, I heard someone criticize the movie Nightcrawler 
because they they found it weird that when the Jake Gyllenhaal character goes walk goes to these um, news stations in the middle of the night, there's like no one in them. And actually, that's completely realistic. Completely. I mean, I, you yeah, know, the like times that. that I have visited, uh, you know, I, I directed this movie with that Leah Thompson was in. And, and when she, when we were going around to film festivals with it, I would somehow sometimes tag along with her when she would go to like local news stations to do interviews promoting the movie or whatever. And I was always shocked when we would go to these news stations and she would go on these TV shows. I was shocked at how few people were involved in the making of these new news broadcasts that like the cameras were all automated and you'd walk in and these places would be just completely deserted. Yeah. And I, and it's, and it's like, and, and all the president's men has this kind of, I don't know. I've, I haven't been to like the LA times lately or anything. So I don't know what the offices are like there nowadays, but there's this very romantic aspect to all the president's men of the biz, you know, the, 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 his girl Friday ask newsroom, of just like this, <laughs> you know, this newsroom where everyone seems really busy and you get the impression that, you know, in the background, there could be any number of other important stories that all of these people are working on. And they're and they're all these intrepid, you know, reporters. And I think it's certainly a movie that now, uh, you know, it, it's it, it has it's funny because I watched it again this week knowing I was going to be talking to you and I hadn't watched it, I don't think, since the beginning of the Trump administration. Yes. And it really, really resonated in a way now because I think there's that you know, now with uh, with Trump administration and all the work journalists are trying to do and how much they're under siege by him and everything else. I think the romanticism of that has like a whole newfound appeal. Um, and I'm kind of kind of jumping all over the place here trying to pin down uh, all the things I love about it. But that uh, it certainly has like, you know, I mean, I always say about period movies, you know, a, a good period movie is about the period in which it takes place and the period in which it was made and a great period movie is about the time which takes place the time in which it was made and the time in which you're watching it you know so <laughs> yes. like so like a, so like a great period movie no matter when you watch it will have some kind of resonance like i always think about john ford's stagecoach which was made in 1939 yes. and i remember i remember watching stagecoach like during the 2012 election in, here in america and you know the banker like comes on and starts giving this like rant in stagecoach about, you know, how, about, about a businessman should be president and all this kind of, and, and it, it, could like a, it could be like a Mitt Romney campaign stump speech. Um, and all the president's men, I think has a little value. I think all the president's men, whenever, you know, because the things all the president's men are about in terms of power and the abuses of power and whether or not power can be held accountable and, and the sort of perennial appeal of the little guy, who can triumph over power, which I believe in a lot less now than I did as a kid. And, and that I believe was possible in the Nixon era and all that kind of stuff. But all of those things are very, have a very timeless appeal. And so I think that movie, no matter when you watch it, it's going to speak to you in a different way. Yeah. A man that you've spoken to a couple of times, Mr. Quentin Tarantino, um, I had a chance to interview him in Oz in the wake of the hateful eight. And he said a very similar thing to me. It was something that it just was so clear in his articulation was, you know, a Western is as much about, you know, he's talking about Western genres. A Western is as much about the period that it is set as the period that it is filmed. Um, and I think exactly the, the wrinkle that you've added there is that about great films is that, that especially in the Western genre as an example or a, or a journalism genre that still has implications to today is that it continues to have a dialogue with you right now as well um and, yeah. and speaks as much to that and you know the john ford example of stagecoach is so wonderful but i think a lot about the searches i think a lot about of the course. searches a lot yeah. um as a definitive western and think about what that's saying about the american culture and 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 especially southern american culture and post-civil war biases that continue to sort yeah. of uh, influence american culture and i watch it all the time and i think Man, that uh, no wonder no wonder Westerns almost had to pivot into revisionist after the searches because what else was there left to say? Like John Ford, yeah. and John Wayne just went, "We're done. This job yeah, is done. No, and, and, we're and we're closing it out." That, yeah, and the Searchers. I mean, and the other interesting thing about Westerns of that era. I mean, the Searchers. I agree with you. It's a movie that you could watch. You can watch it now, and it it, it, it always has something to say about American culture. And and you know, at the time it was made, I mean, you probably. 
you know, you probably could not have made a big Hollywood studio movie with big stars. There was a contemporary film about race and sex and violence and culture and all those things, the way that the searchers was, but it kind of like you could coat the pill by having it be a Western. <laughs> yes. You know? And I think, um, and I do think in a way Western's turning to revisionism. I mean, this is going way off topic, but, but Western's turning to revisionism, especially in the seventies and, and early eighties. Um, I think part of the reason they became less, you know, palatable commercially was that that kind of coating of the pill got, you know, the veneer got stripped away. I mean, yes. and and, it, and and in a way, it's why I think Heaven's Gate was so poorly received when it came out and has aged so well now. I mean, I think that when that movie came out in 1980 and, you know, Reagan was... Be- you know, Reagan was elected president and that was where the kind of the tenor was going in American culture. You know, nobody wanted to hear what Michael Cimino had to say <laughs> about capitalism and about, you know, about about us as a people in Heaven, with Heaven's Gate in 1980. And, the, you know, granted, probably still not that many people want to hear about it. But um, it is a long movie, Jim. It is a long. It movie. is. But I think it's a movie that is aged very, very. I mean, I've always been a champion of that movie, but I but I think, you know, it's it's aged very well. And and. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's an int- again, it's an interesting thing about period movies. And All the President's Men is a very odd kind of period movie because it is a period movie about a period that only took place a couple years before it was made. And that is like this kind of strange subgenre of American movies that, like I say, you know, Bombshell is one a movie like that, Social, Social Network. Network's movie like that. Or yeah. there's a few others, but they're not. Um, uh, you know, Soderbergh's The Laundromat is a movie like that. Uh, you know, to, to find an even more recent example, um, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting and very tricky genre. And again, like I say, to me, it was that movie when I when I came across it in 1980 or whatever it was as a, as an eight year old. I mean, it felt like ancient history to <laughs> me. Um, and and it's and watching it now, it feels like both. It almost, I mean, in in some ways, it weirdly feels more recent, and in other ways, it feels to me like it might as well be a millennium away. Yeah, because I just think, again, I I want to believe in the things in that movie, <laughs> um, and I just, you know, if you've you've heard my Increment Vice podcast, so you know, I'm I'm re- relatively pessimistic about <laughs> the future, the future of mankind. Um, and I'm relatively pessimistic that like two guys like a Woodward and Bernstein today could possibly have the kind of impact. I mean, they couldn't. I mean, clearly they couldn't because the president we have now here in America has done, you know, far crazier and and more corrupt things than than Nixon did and those th- and everyone knows those things and it doesn't matter for and that's a whole other issue trying to figure out why it doesn't matter and why it doesn't have the you know but i mean it's like if Woodward and Bernstein printed that stuff today it would just people would fall asleep well speaking of two men attempting to change the world just with the clarity of a couple of sentences Jim and I are going to dive into the minute right now. We're going to watch it and listen along together. And then we're just going to keep this sprawling conversation, um, including, you know, really rightly so, the pessimism for not only journalism, but the state of mankind um, as we carry on. So guys, have a listen along and Jim and I will be back in just a second. Me, I know exactly what I mean. Not here. I can't tell from this whether Hunt works for Colson or Colson works for Hunt. May I have it? So many conclusions. May I have it? Yes, I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking for a fight either. I'm just aware of the fact that you've only been here nine months. What has that got to do with anything? Well, I've been in the business since I'm 16. What are you saying? Well, I'm trying to tell you that if you'd read mine and then read yours... May I read yours? Yeah. I walked by, gave yours a glance, it didn't look right, so I just figured I'd refine it a little. That first paragraph has to have more clarity. The reader's gonna understand. You don't mention Colson's name for the third paragraph. I think mine's better, but you go ahead and read it. If you think yours is better, we'll give yours to the desk. I've got Colson's name up front. He was a White House consultant and nobody knows right. it. Yours is better. Jim, if you're going to do it, do it right. <laughs> Indeed. And, you know, that scene brings out, uh, 
Well, a, 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 you know, visually that scene, and I know people are just listening to it, but it it, uh, it gets at something I was talking about earlier with the contrasts of, of Gordon Willis's cinematography, because every, you know, the, a, a lot of the shots on Redford in that scene are a little below him, and you can see the ceiling with all of the sort of, like, glaring fluorescent lights above him and things like that. And I think that's another reason, like, in this movie, again, going back to when I was a kid, I was so mesmerized by the deep throat scenes. And I think part of it is that because so much of the movie is under such glaring, blinding light, you know, this like harsh, unattractive office light. And then you get into those scenes in the parking garage and all you can see are like Hal Holbrook's eyes. And so you really like it to the contrast. You just lean in and it's it gives it so much more intrigue. And, and you know, that's something that just stands out at me about that scene but something else about this scene the background actors before we get to the content though i just want to underscore your reinforce your point of background actors who have something to do like there's a long-haired blonde guy who's close to he's sitting close to um, bernstein as in uh, hoffman who walks over to his desk picks up a piece of copy walks away there's a couple of people having a conversation and these desks are weirdly awkwardly uniform and sized in a way that if you're talking for long periods of time, people have that inclination to lean down because it is a noisy hubbub mm-hmm. of, of, of activity. And so you see in the background, there's another journalist who goes over to someone who uh, consulting over something, whether it's a copy desk or editorial, they get up, there's people moving in the background, there's groups of people coming out of a, a catch up together. Um, like you said, there is something so effortless and you can imagine him holding that to a high standard. It's like in, in American cinema, there's a couple of examples where you look at places and you completely forget that you're watching something that's false, something that's made up. And I think all the president's men and like the wedding and the Godfather are two of those things Mm -hmm. where I'm just like, this doesn't feel like anyone here is an actor. It feels like someone's at a party and uh, and it feels like someone's at work. And so yeah. it's just such a strange, weird thing where you know someone's not in a real space. They're in an you know they're in an artificial space, but yet they're creating this like verite quality to everything that is being you know put in front of our eyes. Yeah, I mean, you get the sense that Pecula or his AD or somebody gave every one of those people in the background a specific task or a specific goal. Said you're doing you know as opposed to like just you know a lot of times if you're on a film set and you watch how they stage the extras. It's just about, okay, you cross here and you cross here. And, you know, they're just telling people to walk back and forth in a way that kind yes. of gives this illusion of activity, but doesn't really mean anything. And this gets at a whole, like, kind of theoretical question about what is realism in a movie? And it, yes. because, again, there's this attitude, you know, I think like the Paul Greengrasses or the Peter Bergs of the world have one take on it, which is, you know, realistic means that the camera's handheld and, you know, it's that the frame is not like expertly composed and it looks messy and things like that. And again, it's a matter of personal taste because to me, that's not the illusion of realism to me is actually created by sort of meticulous artifice in a way. Yes. And that's what you, and that's what you get from Pecula. And it's what you get from say, you know, it's funny. I was talking, you brought up Tarantino and I was talking with him about once upon a time in Hollywood. And because that's a movie where I think, you know, has a lot of great kind of background. The extras meticulous artifice is Quentin's bag. He loves it. Yeah. Yeah. And he was saying that on once upon a time in Hollywood, he had a lot of people who like a lot of the extras once upon a time in Hollywood were not conventional extras. They were actually actors who he hired. You know, there's, it's funny because in once upon a time in Hollywood, there's that whole line that Kurt Russell has where he's like, this isn't an Andy McLaughlin picture where I can pay people (laughs) to just sit around and smoke cigarettes in case I might use them. But that's actually what Quentin does. He does do it like an Andy McLaughlin picture where he has like, he, he actually hired a group of actors. who he kind of said, okay, I may, I might use you some days. I might not. I just kind of want you around to throw you in a scene. And because he wanted people, he wanted the people in the background who were, buying cigarettes or who were ordering a drink at Musso and Frank's behind Brad Pitt or whatever, you know, he wanted them to be playing characters, not just crossing to the camera to give the fake sense of, uh, of, of hustle and bustle. And, you know, Pecula is really a master of that. I mean, his, his sense of detail is just, you know, it's exquisite. I mean, like Pecula, I don't know what is, I don't know what I would say his worst movie is, you know, but like his worst movie 
is a movie I would if if I made something a tenth as good, I'd feel like I could, you know, as <laughs> as as as, as uh, you know, Joel McRae says in uh, Ride Thy Country, I could enter my house justified. If I, made a movie, like, <laughs> if I made a movie half as good as Consenting Adults or The Devil's Own, uh, you know, I'd feel pretty good about it because he he really you know it's you know it's, the funny thing about Pacula is I think his reputation nowadays is kind of mostly rests on three movies. I mean, mostly Clute, Parallax View, and All the, All the President's Men all of which he did pretty close together. I mean, and to, and to a certain degree, Sophie's Choice. But, um, but you know, it's like he he kept making great... He made great stuff. Oh, my God. You know, uh, Presumed Innocent is, Presumed I innocent. think, one of the great American movies of the last 30, 40 years. I mean, it's... And it's and, and another movie... And in a Harrison is, Ford career of, like, of, of, like, you know, iconic performances, it is his most underrated it is yeah, probably 100%. his best character actor Harrison Ford performance. His and he did a lot. Of, he did yeah. a few. He was he went through a big experimental phase where he was doing a lot of you know against type things, and yeah. you know I I think that standing at the top of his pile is like Witness and Presumed Innocent as like two of his very 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 best performances. Yeah, I mean Presumed Innocent is, and it also has that hypnotic quality that you talked about with Pecula. I mean it's a very and again, getting back to this whole thing about Pecula, which, about how it's so weird how he does these things that shouldn't work but work better than the movies that do it the way you would think should work. Like, <laughs> yeah. presumed, presumed Innocent is a sort of – in a way, it's like an erotic thriller with the least erotic guy in the history of cinema at its center. <laughs> like Harrison Ford's character in that movie is so – it's like there's a line that Brian Dennehy has about him, how you know tightly wound he is, and he is like the, the like Rusty Savage, the character Harrison Ford plays, presumed innocent. He is like this just stiff, repress like like tightly wound sort of repressed guy um, who is sexually obsessed, and like he's like the opposite of like Michael Douglas and in Basic Instinct. You know, like Michael Douglas and Basic Instinct is like all testosterone you know the guy like walks on screen he's practically like gonna pull his dick out of his pants <laughs> at, at any given point harrison ford in, in presumed innocent is exactly opposite and yet that movie is so seductive and so sensual and and again it, it, a lot of it does have to it's you know also i believe shot by gordon willis and and just uh yeah, really, really amazing, amazing, amazing movie. And um, for, for folks who are listening, and and you you got you wouldn't have heard it, Jim, yet because as we're recording it um, today, you haven't heard the episode. But Liz Hanna, who's the co-writer of the Post, um, mm-hmm. who worked with Spielberg on on the Post, um, was on set one day with Mr. Spielberg and was watching, you know, one of the one of the setups, you know, get crafted and they were getting ready to shoot, and and she just gave a compliment and she's like, Oh, this is a, you know, this is a very, very Pakula shot, mm-hmm. you know, cause they're both clearly fans and, you know, her recounting the tale of Spielberg looking at her and going, thank you. And taking that mm-hmm. as like a monstrous compliment is like, mm-hmm. is no mean feat. <laughs> like when you're yeah, talking well, about he's, who's yeah, a that, huge that, fan. Yeah. Well, it's funny cause I forgot all about the post, but now that you bring it up, I mean, that is actually another movie, you know, Spielberg is, the master of like moving people around in the frame and sort of, you know, again, another movie, like another movie that is just a lot of like people talking in offices and rooms and things like that. And he's so good at making it cinematic and he's so good at at background deal, the detail and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, uh, it's so, I mean, it's, it's so funny that I just told, for some reason I totally forgotten all about the post thinking about these kind of um, newsroom movies and stuff. And no, it's, but the, it's the newsroom, the, the, the different quality is, I think, um, you know, the, the post kind of does that, has that weird slippage because it's, it's, it's almost of its time and ahead of its time. And it kind of got overlooked, you know, because it became a mm-hmm. movie that was in direct dialogue with like the, the presidential election. You know, it was mm-hmm. in direct dialogue mm-hmm. with it and it kind of slipped past. But it's like, it's definitely one of those movies that was intending to create dialogue. And it's in his sort of purple patch of these recent American historical based sort of dramas or dramatizations and, and, and all very high quality, you know, Bridges Spies, Lincoln. Yeah. Like they're well, all. So, so yeah, it's so funny. If, if that, if you had made that movie, I feel like if the post had come out a year later in a way, it probably would have resonated more with people. It was, it was almost, you're right. I think he was almost a little bit. It was, it was almost ahead. ahead. Of the curve. It was almost ahead of yeah. the curve. Yeah, like if it's one year later, 
It's a di- mm-hmm. uh, it's so strange. But I, but I want to get back to your point because this is really interesting. You know, you're a film historian, so this is what's critically important. Is I've always been fascinated, and it was since like early research at university in Oz around you know the considerations of like primary and secondary sources. So when you're looking at cinema and or like you know pop cultural cinema as like reflecting you know sentiments of the time or of the filmmakers of the time, etc. I think what's really strange, All the President's Men has this weird relationship in that even prior to Bob Woodburn and Carl Bernstein actually developing their book pitch, you know, Redford is a powerhouse superstar in Hollywood and is talking to these guys while they're doing the reporting and saying, mm-hmm. you guys have to make a book and I want to do the movie. I want the rights mm-hmm. to it. And then for a movie to be released on January 1st, ish 1976 right in the midst of oscar season um to be considered and 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 for academy members to really digest it and 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 have like a wide impact you know they've got to be producing that all through the year in 1975 and into 74 all the way up until the guys are producing their final days reporting and nixon is actually impeached Mm -hmm. so it is a really strange relationship and 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 an orbit that this film has around the actual real events and and to your point talking about like that fastidious detail that is off uh, out of the frame or in the frame that's not the focus of the frame that this movie has a weird relationship with because you know the fact that it's then and it's so in everyone's consciousness there's really not any other movie that almost ever like maybe the social network now people will look back on and go you know it was almost too soft you know, it was almost too mm-hmm. soft because it was so on the cusp. You know, it's not the guy, you know, Sorkin and Fincher didn't have the luxury of the Cambridge Analytica scandal to talk about right. what cultural impact it was going to have. Right. Um, and even Bombshell's focus um, on the on the Fox News era almost feels like it's, again, that proximity either helps or hinders it. Who knows? It's one of those things mm-hmm. where it and the Post feel like they've got a, a close relationship. So I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on that because it's so strange when you're making a movie based on facts and you're working with the people who it's based on to get the rights to the story to do it while it's happening. Like it becomes this weird, messy, almost incestuous production thing. But in fact, it ends up working so beautifully. Yeah. I mean, I was, that was something that shocked me when I was a kid. And when I learned that, that basically, you know, cause I always assumed the way without really thinking it through and cause you, cause you think through the timeline and this would be impossible, but I always assumed that it was kind of your typical situation where, you know, you, when you're adapting a book where it's like the book came out, was popular. Well, you know, Redford and William Goldman and Pecula adapted it, made a movie. Like I was very surprised to learn of the kind of the, the, the Redford actually kind of had an influence on the construction of the book, you know, <laughs> yes. that it was like that, that, that he, and that the book was being written, you know, that he was kind of monitoring the writing of the book and in touch with them. And it was all kind of, he, and, th- and he was thinking about this movie concurrently with them writing the book i mean that was that was always kind of very very fascinating to me and i think the fact that it all works so well i mean i think you really have to give a lot of credit to redford as a producer on this movie not just the star because what even more than being the star i mean which is which i think is possibly one of his best performances um but Mm -hmm. most definitely as a producer like there's maybe no one who's had more power and influence at the time yeah. than him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, for no, you know, obviously he's responsible for a number of ways. I mean, in, in a number of ways, I mean, there's no way in hell Warner brothers, you know, nobody really wanted to make this, this movie at like <laughs> right. the studio level, but it's like, well, you know, Redford was on such a hot streak. I mean, this period of his career, you know, within a few years, he had the way we were and the sting and, uh, you know, even movies, Bush Cassidy even movies and he, Sundance. Yeah. I mean, even movies, he was, even movies he was doing that were kind of, uh, you know, not as successful like Great Gatsby still were money makers. You know, I mean, he was he he was very very uh, he was like you know one of the biggest movie stars in the world. So if he wanted to do it, uh, you know, they were they were going to kind of hold their nose and and do it. But but in terms of the the detail and the research, I mean, he was by all accounts, you know, just a rabid uh, re, you know re- researcher himself. I mean, um, much more so than goldman i mean uh you know goldman i I don't you know i don't want to make it my my life's mission to to brag on william goldman i was just i was just i was just i was just on the i was just on this another podcast where he came up and i was kind of you know i i find goldman to be i was talking about how overrated i think he is and and i do i mean i think uh I, i think he gets 
I think he gets a lot of credit for a lot of things that are not necessarily his and, and all the president's men is exhibit a, I mean, I, I mean, by all accounts, you know, no one was really very happy with Goldman's script. I mean, Pecula and Redford certainly weren't. And then, and then there was this whole crazy thing. I don't know if you've talked about this on your podcast yet, because I, I sort of stopped. I, once I knew I was going to be on, I stopped listening because I was afraid it would paralyze me if I heard about <laughs> too many other people talking. So, so if you've already talked about this, I apologize, but you know, there's this whole weird, like, then, you know, Goldman wrote his drafts that, that nobody was really happy with. And then there was this whole sort of weird side thing where Carl Bernstein and Nora Ephron, who he was married to at the time, uh, without telling anybody they were going to do it, they kind of wrote their own draft that then they gave to Redford and Pecula, um, that also was not liked. Uh, and then essentially Redford and Pecula kind of, you know, heavily rewrote the script themselves. And Redford did a lot of the real legwork in terms of, talking to a lot of the people involved. I mean, I mean, really kind of doing the, the sort of same sort of work his character does in the movie, just, you know, uh, doing a lot of the kind of uh, firsthand research that evidently Goldman didn't really do. Um, and so I think you have to, you know, again, it's, I think basically it is a, it's, it's, we haven't gone into that detail. So I love, I was just letting you, letting you absolutely go there. And I think that there has been some sort of internet sleuthing um, in the past around, what was there, what wasn't there. And I think where it sort of landed is you're absolutely right. Goldman did a script uh, that ultimately won the the best screenplay. And it wasn't, you know, um, uh, what they sort of found is that like sort of 70 to 80%, let's say, of the script was Goldman's and the structure, most importantly, was there. But you're mm-hmm. right that you look at Goldman as a figure and he's he's a master. He had much more of an influence as a mentor almost right. arguably you could say then and, and with his most influential films on an emerging crop of filmmakers like a David Fincher or an Aaron Sorkin, et cetera, who had huge yeah. careers um, and, and you know, was so deeply influenced by every part of his work. Um, but it's really interesting. It's like that you cannot understate the importance of a director and having a direct influence on the text because someone like a Pakula and a Redford being so in charge of it. It's like the script being there and then having a Hoffman who is a noted improviser and Redford, who is the producer and those guys working and collaborating on a style. Like you, you, there's the script can only do so much when you get those, all those collaborators on the ground. Like it's going to be a foundation. Yes, it's going to be great, but there's going to be so much more in the organic chemistry of what is actually created on set. And in such a weird way too, Bob Woodburn and Carl Bernstein are involved in the film production. So they're yeah. like there. It's so it's like it's like these yeah. real guys are there. Oh, what did you say? Or what would you say? Like these small details that may have escaped the script don't don't miss the final product because these guys are right there to sort of, you know, continue to arbiter over its quality as they're developing it. Well, it's such an interesting movie in you know, like in terms of the auteur theory, because like, you know, I'm a big believer to a certain extent. Oh, Jim, and... you and I are both what they call vulgar or tourists. So um, <laughs> yeah. I think we can happily say that. Um, but at the same time, I mean, the, it is an interesting, you know, all the president's men is an interesting movie in that it's one of those movies that has laser focus and is very, has a very, very clear point of view, both literary and visually, um, but is the product of so many different voices. And I mean, I do think at the end of the day, a lot of it, a lot of credit has to go to Redford for kind of pulling them all together. But I mean, cause you, but you because you do look at that movie and it's like, obviously, it's now a peculiar movie, but it's also like you a know, Robert as Redford you say, movie. It's a Robert Redford movie. It's a Gordon Willis movie. I mean, it's one of those movies. There's some movies where I feel like you could take out certain key creative forces and replace them with someone else. And the movie would not be fundamentally changed. I mean, all president's men with, with a different cinematographer other than Gordon Willis. That's a totally, different it's a movie. totally different movie. Yeah, um, no, you can't, you, you know, can't take any of the ingredients you know, like a tour de force, like a a Quentin, and although he and his relationship with like Bob Richardson has been so gargantuan, you can see Quentin as a guy who has such a singular voice and such a singular vision as a director. Yeah. Of like he he puts the camera everywhere. He's like a he's like a Soderbergh who's like hovering on that camera and 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 being intently and intently sort of doing it. You can see that maybe with a different cinematographer, he he might have a a same or similar result. And that's no offense right. to Robert Bob Richardson's style. He's such an effective, you know, um, 
you know, stylistic sort of, he can take stylistic pivots because he's worked with people like Oliver Stone and Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. and, you know, all those sorts of huge personalities and uh, as directors. But I agree with you. If you take it, this this book is so uh, this book's adaptation into a film is so perilously balanced on the alchemy of all of these different ingredients yeah. that that you know you take any of them out any of the stars like all the, all the way to robards all the way to the right. bookkeeper you know like you take these yeah. people out and it just something is different and something doesn't work yeah i mean i, I, I... A hundred percent. And I, I mean, that's a perfect way to put it is it's the alchemy of it. I mean, it's somehow, it's somehow all the right elements were there. And again, I think you have to give a certain amount of credit to Redford as a producer, because I also think he, you know, he's the guy who kind of forced it through all the way. I mean, even into, you know, the editing, I mean, Pecula was kind of notoriously a guy who would sort of go through self doubt in the editing room and things like that. And Redford was kind of the guy in this movie who was like, we got to pull this thing together. It's not gonna be ready for release if we don't get this <laughs> thing, you know, going. And it's, and it's funny because Redford, it's, it's, it's a com. you know, Redford was, I mean, I guess it was inevitable that he was going to eventually turn to, uh, to directing because it's, it's a common thread in movies of this period with him, this whole thing where of him being a sort of co-auteur and, there being these sort of multiple auteurs on one movie. Like I was just thinking, I just watched Jeremiah Johnson again recently Mm. and that's a really weird movie. It's a great movie, but it's like a weird movie in the sense that you've got these voices that like theoretically shouldn't really be compatible, but, but are like, you've got, so it's written by John Milius directed by Sidney Pollack. And those two guys have totally different sensibilities. And yet the movie works really well as both a John, it's a full on John Milius movie and it's a full on Sidney Pollack movie. And it's a full-on Robert Redford movie, um, but you know. Anyway, it's this this one. Yeah, it's just uh, it's really fascinating. I mean, I just think you know Goldman. I just find it funny. You know, Goldman, I think is you know he's like the the ma- a master. He was a master self promoter, but he's like one of those guys. I think part of my beef with him is and, and look, obviously the guy has written. You know, he wrote some of my favorite movies, Marathon Man fan. I mean, I don't think. You, Butch Cassidy, you can't. But like you know, he he always you know he, he he he's like one of these guys. Like he's one of these guys. I think living in living in and working in Hollywood, I, I find that there's still uh, you know people still quote they still like quote the dumb things he wrote in the seventies as though they're gospel and it kind of like you know and I mean I, I'm old enough to remember when he had his dopey premiere magazine column where he would pontificate about movies and write these like self serving. I remember like the Christmas the, of 1990. The, the, the big, the big picture book uh, assembles yeah, those wrote- things. And it's what is fascinating. I love it. <laughs> I'm not going to argue the dopiness. I'm actually a fan of it, but I love that. It's like that. Nobody knows anything is, is, is such an, is such an overarching statement that takes away the context of like the time in which he bloomed because what, yeah. what, that nobody knows anything ethos is so indicative of like that transition from like classic Hollywood to new Hollywood and then back out into the post Reagan Hollywood era of like, you know, blockbusters and Spielberg and those sorts of things that it's such a weird thing of like, nobody knows anything. Yeah, of course, because you like each era of movies redefines movies. Like, yeah, the, 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 no, the, no, but, and, and, and I love also all of the Oscar predictions because nearly all of them in that book, which is great. Cause if you're reading the column live, you didn't get this, but if you're reading right. the book, how wrong a lot of them are. <laughs> like, that's, that's really funny. Yeah. I, I didn't, I never read the book, but I read the columns as they were coming out. And I just, I just remember the one he wrote at Christmas of 1990, where he was handicapping all the movies that were coming out in 1990 and Christmas time. And one of them was misery, which he wrote. And it's like, <laughs> misery is like, misery is listed as like, Oh, this is one of the promising ones. This is going to be, this is going to be one of the great ones. And it's like, well, of course you're going to say that. And meanwhile, he's like ragged on the Palma and all these people. And anyway, I don't know. I don't know Look, why I, I have such I, a beef I, with William Goldman. I, but did, I do have friends of the show. I do have friends of the show that remind me that this is the guy who wrote Dreamcatcher. Um, so that's their usual. Which, pro- probably one of my three or four favorite movies you ever had anything to do with, but that's for another podcast. Oh, that is a huge, that is definitely for another podcast. Look, um, oh, but I, something I wanted to get back to about the, about the minute that we watched, uh, is that that particular minute also, I think speaks to another part of the appeal of all the president's men, which is that 
it is in its way the, the closest it comes to being a quote unquote commercial genre movie is as a kind of buddy movie. Um, you know, and I do think that like that's you know, the casting of Hoffman and Redford uh, opposite each other in that movie is just it's so perfect. And, and you know, originally Redford thought about Pacino for that role, and obviously Pacino, you know, fantastic actor, probably would have been great. But I, I don't know. There's just something about Hoffman's um, about his nervous energy opposite Redford's kind of rock solid uh i don't know how to i don't know how to phrase it exactly but you know what i'm saying There's yeah he's, he's got he's got each a, other so perfectly yeah redford is effortless confidence he's just so sure yeah. and deliberate in every decision that That's he's making yeah. and you can see in hoffman i love what you said there is like a nervous energy that pacino doesn't have because if you look at the same contrasting periods other than really the incredible incredible dog day afternoon he's yeah. not doing as much of that nervous kinetic stuff what he's doing is having these characters that exude this presence that is bigger than his physical like makeup like he's exuding mm-hmm. something big you know michael Corleone, of course serpico of course um so you see these roles where he feels like he's bigger but that that deliberate and, and almost like in posture as well, that deliberate sort of straight and strong and sturdy Redford movie star ashore, like he's the, he's the rudder that is steering this ship and Hoffman's more kinetic, bouncy energy. Like they just, they link in so perfectly. Like you, you yeah. need it. And, and the other technique that they talk about famously is learning each other's lines to step over each other's sentences when they're interacting with other people is just such a deft touch of like, this is the perfect collaboration, you know, like who would have yeah. thought of that? It's just, it yeah, adds to that. That's a brilliant idea. Adds to that. Uh, yeah. That's a brilliant idea. I would love to try to steal that someday for something <laughs> at work. It's it's such a, it's such a good idea. And and it's interesting too the, the, the way they play those characters in that movie, because, you know, there's this superficial sense that Hoffman's character, you know, like, like Hoffman's character is kind of the, you know, Bernstein is like the, I don't know if shameless is the right word, but like, he's the guy who's just, going to go for the story no matter what like redford's character woodward you know he'll have these moments where he seems quote unquote more to have more of a conscience like he'll there's that scene where they're talking to um their co-worker who was engaged to the guy they need information sally, from and yeah sally and she says you know and, and redford's the one who says uh you know forget it we don't want to do, want you to do anything you're uncomfortable with um but in fact uh, you know as you watch the movie more closely you realize that he's kind of that's all a to a certain degree, a ruse. Like he is pretending to be the good cop, but he's really the guy. Oh, who's I'm kind sorry. Of going into sorry, it. it's Kaeti. Sorry, it's Kaeti is the is the character's name, and it's Lindsay. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. I right. just got, I wanted to correct to make sure Sally Aitken is another character. Got so it. I just wanted to be really okay. Deliberate. Good. Right. Well, so so yeah, the character Lindsay Krause from Slapshot plays. She, um, yeah, she like it's like he, you know, Redford's character. As you watch it, there's this it, the, the dynamic between the two of them, and this goes back to that thing of yours about them learning each other's lines there is this kind of ping-ponging back and forth between who is really kind of the master manipulator of people because really redford's character woodward is you know he's actually kind of going for the throat as much as bernstein is but his way of going for the throat is acting like he's not going for the throat and then that's how he kind of gets the Lindsay cross character to actually give him what he wants and it's uh that that, yeah, it's, that is a perfect that is a perfect moment in this movie um, about the way that he goes about that. But it's even it's in this minute, there's one moment I want to bring up. It's like, this is the most annoyed. I think we see Woodward even get the most rise Mm -hmm. out of him. And it's not in the, the words that he says it's when he snatches the new version of the copy. It's like the one time in this entire movie where conflict without personal conflict. And you feel like this would be a huge crescendo in a contemporary movie. Like someone would really underscore that they wanted this conflict and they want to sort of, you know, make make their relationship more problematic or unnecessarily overdramatic. But all it is mm-hmm. is like, I'm annoyed and he reads it. And what's so great is how quickly he returns back to center. Like it's actually yeah. Bernstein and Hoffman freaking out a bit around, you know, oh, you know, he's, he's going to be really insulted. He's like, no, yours is better. Mm-hmm. Yours is better, and that's it. Yeah, it's funny, all the little moments, all the little differences between the two of them in the movie, how 
yeah, like how kind of minor and underplayed they are. Like the scene where Redford reveals that he's a Republican and Hoffman just kind of gives him that funny look. Wonderful. And, you know, and, and it's, um, and again, I, you know, I think it's, again, gets at what makes the what, what makes the movie so compelling and hypnotic is this sense that you almost just have, you almost have to you, like constantly lean in watching it. Whereas if it was made, you know, most filmmakers, like you say, would have, they would play up that conflict more. And in a weird way, it wouldn't be as compelling. Like it's more compelling because it's so, it's so much just like in Redford's body language as opposed to them having some big blow up over it. It's, it is just the way he snatches the paper back and the way his whole body kind of tenses up and and everything. And it's uh, you know, it's a cliche to say like that filmmakers, of that era trusted the audience more or something, but that is, you know, Pecula is kind of interesting because he is, he does trust the audience more and yet he's also very, very manipulative. And I mean that as a comp, like in a good way, like in a way that say, you know, Robert Altman wasn't, you know, Robert, like, like, <laughs> yes. uh, and, and it's, so it's, but it's one of, it's one of the things I think makes Pecula, one of the all-time greats. And I think, and what makes like, you know, Pecula when he did have content that was sort of more overtly dramatic, like a Sophie's choice or a presumed innocent. I mean, he could really, really go to town. Oh, yeah. He was really, you know, uh, cause he was such a great kind of master manipulator with his camera. Well, look, Jim, I, I, I unlike my co-star on, uh, one heat minute productions, Travis Woods. I'm not trying to beat the running time of all the president's men with our first conversation. <laughs> but what I'm going to say is that I'm going to need you to come back. I need you to Absolutely. come back on the show at some point because I think there's so much more that I want to talk about. I do welcome any opinions of William Goldman that are different from the gush that is going to abound in this show. So thank you for that. Well, too. and I, and again, I'm being a bit of a contrarian because <laughs> of that. Like I'm sort of, it isn't, I mean, you know, before like people come after me on Twitter or something like that, I mean, you know, I, you know, being like, who the hell is this idiot? This guy who, you know, who's this guy who wrote, who wrote a low budget Hercules movie to be, to be ragging on William Goldman. Uh, you know, I, I, again, I, he clearly, he's written several of my favorite movies of all time. Clearly a major talent. I am, I will go to my grave defending Dreamcatcher actually as a, as a, an underrated uh, American movie. So, I mean, I am, to a certain degree, I'm a fan of his. I just, I think his canonization as though he's like this sort of high priest of American screenwriting and makes these proclamations from the mountain and stuff, you know, I, I, I like to push back against that a little bit. It's just, again, it's the it's the contrarian in me, I suppose. The, Look, the, contra- the same side of me the, that thinks the, Dreamcatcher is a great movie, I guess. <laughs> it's, the gen, it's the Gen X um, you know, a friend, a friend of a friend of one eight minute production, Sean Burns, says, you know, I, you know, as a kid who grew up in the eighties, largely, um, we got taught to distrust things that everyone liked and yeah. and conventional wisdom. And so it's it, it makes sense now that in twenty twenty, reflectively, when people talk about conventional wisdom, to still somewhat rail against it. But that's okay. Yeah. That. But 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 also, I think you say something that's really important, which is, you know, there are some films that you know you. And I think this is where you talk about the alchemy of all the presidents and, and Goldman is if you look at the script of, say, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, which I think is his best written script, mm-hmm. it's, it, yeah. that script is a damned blueprint that yeah. if followed, like, is, is, is such a, it's such a blueprint that if followed, like, there was no way the movie was not going to be successful as right. per the script. Whereas I think what you came up with, which is, you know, what people, even as as great as the wonderful and iconic Paul and Kale were wrestling with something like Citizen Kane is like the, the alchemy of who is steering a movie as an auteur is, is still something to be debated. And there are certain movies that no, there's no need for debate because in All the President's Men, it's about Pacula, it's about Willis, it's about Redford, it's about Bernstein and Woodward themselves. And it's about the conflict of Goldman from a structural perspective that adds all that, 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 you know, it's not all a seamless thing. It's sometimes a dialogue and a, and a bit of a wrestle. But that wrestle ultimately, you know, created the pressure to make this diamond that we continue to revisit. That not only meant a lot to the people in 1976 who first watched it, that not only meant a lot, 
you know, um, uh, at, at the time of when it was based, you know, in, in sort of, you know, 70, um, 72 onwards. Um, but it means, it continues to mean a lot with every single revisit that we take with it as audience members and as people who are, you know, are, are, are continuing to wrestle with it and keep going back to it reflexively because it's a balm, because it's just so great, because it's effortless, you know, all those things, um, I think it make it so, 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 so special. I agree completely. A huge thank you to my incredible guest, Jim Hemphill. What a mind. I cannot wait to get him back onto the show at a later date. If you want to follow Jim, the best place to find him is at Jimmy Hemphill, at J-I-M-M-Y-H-E-M-P-H-I-L-L on Twitter. You can find him there, and it's jimhemphillfilms.com to find all his other stuff. Um, it, he's a great follow, a historian, and in this time of COVID-19, um, he won't be doing as many Q&As, so uh, reach out to him on the Twitters, but we'll definitely have him back on the show as soon as we can manage it. He is an absolute treasure. Thank you so much again for listening to all the President's Minutes and anything on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and producer of Increment Vice, as well as everything that's been happening on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. If you want to follow me, simply go to at One Blake Minute on Instagram and on Twitter, or to oneheatminute.com to find out everything that's happening with the show and about the show. If you guys want to support us, we have a link on oneheatminute.com to our Patreon. If you can spare even a couple of bucks a month, the cost of a coffee a month you are going to be contributing to this show, the amazing Increment Vice, and any other amazing shows that are a part of One Heat Minute Productions. Thank you so much in advance. If you can't support us, you don't have the cash, that's totally fine. But please subscribe, rate, review, and share the shows. We would love, if you are digging the show, share them with like-minded film folk around the place. Thank you so much once again for listening to this episode. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes and another episode in the One Heat Minute Productions feed very soon.